Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Author Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Matthew Wappet, the DDNJ Editor-in-Chief, and I am also the Executive Director of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice, Utah's USED program, and it's my privilege to host this podcast. This podcast is actually one of my favorite things that I get to do because it gives me a chance to talk to so many different researchers and professionals who are out in the field today making a difference. In fact, many of the people we have on the podcast are literally changing the world in their own quiet way. And today's podcast is especially special for me because I get to visit with my friend and uh, and colleague Tawara Good. Uh, before we jump into Tawara's intro and her interview, though, I do want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, this podcast, the Author Insights Podcast, is part of our ongoing commitment to increase the accessibility of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal for a wider readership. Uh, not everyone has time to sit down and read an entire article these days, let alone an entire issue, and more and more people are choosing to get their information through podcasts and audiobooks. I've said this in past podcasts, but the last year I've listened to more audiobooks than I've read uh, physical books, and that's a first for me. But I think it's indicative of the shift that's going on in our country, and more and more people are wanting their content in different multimedia formats. So the launch of this podcast is an attempt to capitalize on that. It also means that you can access DDNJ's content while you are on the go. And it means that you can share it more readily across social media and other platforms. You don't have to send somebody an article or a book. You can share a link and they can go listen to the conversation themselves. We recognize at DDNJ that it's important that we present our information through a wide range of media to help increase the accessibility of this information. And we hope that this podcast will help provide another alternative for you and for your stakeholders to access the great research that is being put out through DDNJ. So with that said, Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed so you get updates on the latest uh, the latest episodes. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean. Anywhere that you can access podcasts, you can access the DDNJ Author Insights podcast. Please leave us a rating and a review. And again, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Sharing this and getting the links out there and helping people know that this is a resource helps us build our following and helps get a wider audience for the work that we are publishing through DDNJ. So with that said, as I mentioned, I'm really excited about our conversation today. I have known Tawara Good for many, many years, and Dr. Good has become a, a, a great friend and is just it's just a privilege to sit down and talk to her. So uh, you'll notice that our conversations may be a little more relaxed than others. And part of that is the fact that Tawara and I have known each other for for a long time. And so um, it's a I felt like there was more of a flow in today's conversation. And so it's just again, it, it was just such a fun time to sit down and to pick Tawara's brain and to really understand better the history of the work that she is doing and just how long it's actually taken um, for Tawara and the National Center on Cultural Confidence to get traction within the field. I had no idea that they started back in the 90s doing this work. And, you know, it's really only been within the past 10 years that I think we've seen substantive progress towards addressing some of these issues in the disability services. So, Tawara gives us some really important insights on this. And I think, uh, again, it's a really uh, informative conversation that I've had with her. Um, but before that, I should introduce her for those of you who don't know Tawara. Tawara Good, Dr. Tawara Good, is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. She has been on the faculty of the Georgetown University Center for Child and Human Development for over 30 years and has served in many capacities. She is currently the director of the Georgetown University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and focuses on a national level to advance and sustain cultural and linguistic competence as evidence-based policies and practices that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
She has worked at Georgetown for over 35 years and has extensive experience as a principal investigator for federal, state, and private sector grants and contracts. Uh, she is also the director of the Georgetown University National Center for Cultural Competence uh, at the USED there. And uh, again, the as I mentioned earlier, the National Center for Cultural Competence was originally funded in 1995. And, pro, and Professor Good has served as the director of the National Center for the past 26 years. The mission of the National Center for Cultural Competence is to increase the capacity of healthcare and mental health care programs to design, implement, and evaluate culturally and linguistically competent service delivery systems to address the growing diversity, persistent disparities, and to promote health and mental health equity. Professor Good is recognized as a thought leader in the area of cultural and linguistic competence and building the National Center for Cultural Competence into a nationally and internationally recognized and award-winning program. She, as many of you probably know, she's been an invited scholar, lecturer, visiting faculty. She's uh, worked here in the U.S. She has worked internationally. Um, and anyway, her just impact, I think, within the developmental disabilities network, uh, but within the disability field in general, is really unmatched by many other people who are working today. Tawara continues to conduct research on cultural and linguistic competence and is using that research to help address disparities across health and human services. She is the author of the concluding article in our special issue on diversity, equity, and inclusion. The title of that article is Advancing Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Developmental Disabilities, the Essential Role of Leadership for Cultural and Linguistic Competence. And we're excited to get Tawara's insights on why leadership is so important. The choice to end the most recent issue of DDNJ with Tawara's article was intentional because she really does highlight that making a difference, making our organizations, making our service providers, making any group, right, that is trying to serve a diverse population uh, more culturally competent and linguistically competent requires leadership. And her article really does highlight the importance of leadership and what that leadership looks like when we're trying to make, um, yeah, advances in this area today. So anyway, the episode today is a wide-ranging conversation with Tawara on the origins of the National Center and cultural competence, her work promoting diversity and inclusion. She really is one of the most intelligent and wise individuals that I've had the privilege of working with over my career. And I'm just really excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Tawara Good. So I am just going to go ahead and jump in, Tawara. Um, and again, I do want to start by saying thank you for making time to do this. I know you're incredibly busy and it really is just a privilege for you to carve out a little bit of time to have this conversation. So thank you. I, it's my pleasure. And um, we're buds. And when you ask anything I can do to be supportive of you, I'm there. Well, thank you. You are far too kind. So as you mentioned, we've known each other for a while, uh, but not everybody listening to this podcast may know about your background. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your background with the USED Network and DD-related programs. All right. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Um, so I think I want to just start off by saying um, I've been with uh, Georgetown University Center for Excellence and Developmental Disabilities for many, many, many years. Um, and so um, I got my start um, as it relates to really doing developmental screening and assessment for kids who may be at risk for developmental delay and disability. And that's what brought me to the, um, to the use at, at Georgetown. And uh, it has just expanded outward for many years in a whole range of areas, largely focusing on addressing disparities, looking at cultural and linguistic competence within the context of disability supports and services. And I would say that across the lifespan. So that could include community service activities, interdisciplinary training in um, community 
education, it would include research and evaluation and also information dissemination. So um, um, this is my work at Georgetown. I've also been very actively involved in the AUCD network. I've served on the board for one stretch, probably six to seven years as a former president of the board um, back in, in 2020 and have shared wonderful relationships with my USED colleagues like you, Matt, uh, across, across the, the United States um, uh, and, and within looking at our, our territories. That work has focused, again, largely on really helping us to understand the cultural differences, responding to linguistic differences across populations, um, as it relates to um, persons who experience intellectual development disabilities, their families, the communities in which they live, and the extent to which they are um, impacted by uh, disparities, inequities overall. So I think, and I think that last piece there um, is probably what most people know you from is your work on diversity, equity, and inclusion in um, disability-related programs. And I think uh, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. One of, the, one of the things that you did there at Georgetown, right, was start the National Center for Cultural Competence uh, in collaboration with ACL. Can you give us a little bit about the history of the start of the National Center for Cultural Competence and, and how you got that? up and going and how you've been working with ACL to more effectively address diversity and inclusion? Yeah, um, what um, probably a little known history fact about the National Center for Cultural Competence, uh, we wrote the first grant in 1995 and it actually was funded by Health Services, um, Health Resources and Services Administration, the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, huh. so under MCH. Um, and there's a, a very astute project officer named Diana Dembova, who's now retired, who looked at the program supporting kids with disabilities and special health care needs, again, under the um, Maternal and Child Health Bureau, and found that they were not reaching all of the children who have a variety of experiences um, within state Title V programs. And she came up with the idea of starting a national center for cultural competence. And in fact, our original name was the Maternal and Child Health National Center for Cultural Competence. So that's how we got our start. I wrote that first grant and fortunately it was funded. And we have continued to do a, a range of things. And I just say really fortunate and privileged to have been able to continue this work with many funding opportunities across the board. I would say that ACL came a little later to this space, mm -hmm. just in terms of the kinds of funding opportunities that they offered. However, because I also worked within the USED, that all the work that I did within the USED always had a cultural lens, always took language into consideration, always looked at diversity, equity, and inclusion. So to me, these things were indeed merged. So mm -hmm. as I think about the work, um, most recent work with uh, ACL, we've done just a range of things. We had a community of practice um, that focuses on cultural and linguistic competence within um, the intellectual and development disability space. We've done um, a project that looked at embedding cultural and linguistic competence within curricula for our USEDs and related programs. Uh, there are just a whole range of opportunities that have come through ACL, and particularly most recently in the focus on looking at, at equity. So um, that gives you just a little bit of history um, about the National Center for Cultural Competence. We did not always stay within the intellectual and developmental disability space. It could have been broader, again, looking at public health, uh, education, and the like. However, because of our commitment, we always brought disability to the table no matter what, no matter what the project would be. Huh. Well, I, I had no idea that it started back in 95. And I guess that's on, <laughs> that's on me for not doing my homework. But that's been, it, that's incredible. And I didn't realize that HRSA was the first agency to fund you. Yes, huh. HRSA. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, so at the very end there, you were talking about how, you know, regardless of the group that you're working with or the domain that you're working within, you've always brought disability back. And, you know, one of the things that we always struggle with, um, at least those of us who work within disability programs, is sometimes disability is left out of broader conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And sometimes you have to fight to get a seat at the table. Um, sometimes we don't think about it the other way, that sometimes in disability-related programs, we don't think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or historically haven't uh, done it. So it, it is a bit of a two-way street. So, I mean, I know this is going to be a basic question to you, but why is it so important that disability-related programs be more mindful of diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think that um, in one way, disability organizations have looked at diversity and have looked at inclusion, but that was through a particular lens. So I think that diversity may have looked more so the diversity of disabilities that would be within any given population. And then I would say from the inclusion perspective, it's looking at inclusion through the lens of um, whether or not persons who experience disabilities uh, have the same rights, privileges, and opportunities as others. And so I think that we have not looked at equity at all um, in, in this space. We have used a term a lot, but we certainly have not looked at equity. Um, that being said, the disability community also has not really looked at inclusion from the lens of diverse racial, ethnic, cultural, and linguistic, and other identity groups. So that the inclusion was very disability focused, not maybe looking at the population of people, the broad population of people who experience um, disabilities. And so I, I think that we're late to the stage, um, late to the game, as it relates to this, um, there are other fields, particularly, I would say, health that are far ahead of us in terms of defining what is health equity. We in the disability space have not defined what is equity. Um, and we have limited ways in which we have viewed inclusion and diversity. I hope so, that makes sense. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And I appreciate you um, making those distinctions i think especially within the past few years um and this is my opinion of course but this term of dei or edi or however people are doing those um acronyms has people have come to see that as kind of a monolithic you know it's one thing and i appreciate you breaking that out and really articulating you know diversity is this and inclusion is this and equity is this because i think sometimes those distinctions get overlooked I agree. I think um, right now I feel that the term equity is, I would say, overused and not well delineated. And so that it's it's used, I'm just, I won't say indiscriminately, it's, it's, it's used um, in a very generous way to describe many things. And so one of the things, if I if we got a request for training or something else, and I said, we want to do something in DEI. And then I'd listen and tell me more. And then they're still saying DEI. And so I really do make uh, an effort to not use the acronym um, DEI yeah. because when we do, it it, it it clumps everything together. So when people ask, well, you know, tell me what you do in DEI, I will say, which one? <laughs> and are you talking diversity? Are you talking equity? Um, are you talking inclusion? Because they are related, but they're distinctively different. And we just need to be much more conscious about that. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Um, they are unique and different in how they look at the issues and how they approach the issues, certainly. So you've been doing this since 1995, you mentioned, around the National Center for Cultural Competence. But what are some of the big changes or have you seen changes over the last 10 years around how the disability field is addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion? I would say that, um, yeah, I've been doing this since 1995, and uh, I had to look at perspectives. So in 1995, when we were originally funded, and again, looking at kids with disabilities and special health care needs, um, it was hard to, quote, give it away 
Okay, we had these federal resources, we had all these things that we could do, and it was very hard to get into Title V programs um, and other programs that support uh, children and youth with um, intellectual development disabilities and special health care needs. So if I look at that, engage that to where we are now, um, there's been significant changes. Um, just even in terms of something as simple as, as a website and what are the images that are reflected on the website or in brochures or in other um, visual, um, visual media. Um, they used to pretty much all look the same. Now we see those same images, different images, I would say, um, that reflect more of the people across the board by race, ethnicity, and other uh, identity groups who actually live in this country. So it just something as simple as that has expanded over the last 10 years. Um, we've seen more centers coming out of ACL that have been funded with the requirement that they're looking at the diversity of populations that reside in the U.S., um, tribal nations, um, and, and territories. That is, uh, that is a big emphasis in terms of change. Um, what uh, also, if we look at training programs uh, for many of the different disciplines, whether it's speech and language, psychology, et cetera, there's been a greater emphasis on looking at not just diversity, equity, inclusion, also cultural competence and linguistic competence within this context. So those are some of the things that we see. I feel that um, many people are much more invested Many people are much more um, open, although that there are some pockets of, uh, I'm going to say resistance mm -hmm. or just um, not seeing the value. So being able to see more papers that have been written, more studies, articles that are really examining what does culture mean in a disability space? What are, quote, evidence-based practices, which is another one of my um, um, big peeves. It's, I don't know if it's an evidence-based practice. I always ask evidence-based for whom? So if your population of focus isn't inclusive or is only has a certain um, um, racial, ethnic, or other group, then that may be an evidence-based practice for that group, but I can't generalize that because your population wasn't broader. So I think that there's still significant things that we need to be able to look at, including defining what is equity, what does it mean in, in the IDD space? We need to really look at um, ensuring that curricula uh, and faculty have the capacity to actually teach this, um, that there's opportunities for community engagement in which faculty and students go into spaces within communities that you know, may have been um, historically uh, minoritized. Mm -hmm. How do you engage? I mean, there's so much that we need to do in this space and it needs to be systemic. It doesn't mean that one person really likes this area and they're gonna focus on it. It needs to be part and parcel of all we do in this space. Yeah, well, and I, I couldn't agree more, um, but you did mention a little bit earlier on in your response there that there, there has, or maybe there is some resistance emerging to this. And I know here in, in Utah, particularly in this last legislative session, there was an attempt to pass uh, a law, right? Pass a, through the legislature to, uh, to stop universities from doing DEI related work. And I know that's not unique to Utah. I know there's several other um, states that have attempted to do that. Have you felt that same sort of pushback in the work that you do? Is that something that you are feeling and seeing impact? the progress that you've made? I would not say the progress that we've made because that's there, it's solid, it's an evidence base mm -hmm. and people know the integrity of our work. I will say that, um, that there are maybe technical assistance requests that come in from a variety of states uh, indicating that the social, cultural and political environment has changed and that they're struggling with um, some things in terms of um, how to approach these efforts within state programs 
where you are limited in terms of what you're able to say. Um, so I think that that kind of resistance will always be there in certain seg segments of, of, I don't know, a, a policy, et cetera. On the other hand, there are many more states that are motivated to really dig into equity. And what does that mean within this context? And what does inclusion mean and diversity uh, mean within the context? And so I, I feel that working to support those organizations would get my first, um, let's see, how can I say this? Um, will receive the attention and those who are being resistant, um, perhaps things will change in the future, but where do you focus your time and energy and resources? And um, I'm gonna call it, um, and I won't quote the source, but we're gonna work with the coalition of the willing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. That, that certainly makes progress a little bit more satisfying as opposed to working with the unwilling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I appreciate that perspective. <laughs> I mean, it, we, you don't have unlimited resources. So how do you how do you funnel those resources? And I just think we are we're we're at a period in this country where there's a lot of divisiveness around race, around gender, uh, around gender identity and expression, even things like social emotional learning that used to be neutral, but now it's it's politically charged. So part of leadership is being able to navigate through these periods of time to stay um, true to the science and to the evidence base and to your work. And also um, um, not get too distracted by the noise um, yeah. that may offset uh, may just cloud our thinking and our approaches. And, you know, fortunately, I, in the District of Columbia, that's not an issue. We are doing some work with New York and also California. Um, when I say it's not an issue, it's not, a, a, let's see, an obvious issue. There, there's yeah. going to always be pockets of resistance. Yep, yep, absolutely. It's It seems to become becoming more more and more prevalent. I guess, and and more and more visible, you know, as before, it may not have been visible, people may not have been comfortable expressing their resistance. But I don't know, at least over the last few years, my opinion and my perspective has been that people are more willing to voice their dissent, um, which again, is, a, is an important right, I think, but um, it does create some unique challenges as we try to continue this work. It does. Um... And I think part of leadership is that the work will go on because there's always going to be what we call an adaptive challenge. There's always going to be an adaptive challenge. And I, I just want to speak a little bit to this. So if we're looking at what folks within our network may be doing in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, including cultural and linguistic confidence, I often see that as looking at curricula, looking at training, uh, and a project. Um, and I would say that often those approaches, just training, say, for instance, in and of itself, um, this is not the solution to an adaptive problem. So that if we're looking at how do we differentiate technical um, from adaptive um, challenges, um, we look at just basically asking this one question, does making progress require changes in people's values, their behaviors, their attitudes, and their actions? And if you answer yes to that, now again, think about this in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. If you answer yes to all of those, that tells you that you're in adaptive work. Anyone can do a curriculum. The adaptive work is being able to train people to want to use those that curricula understand the content, convey it to their students, um, and feel very motivated to do that. And if I've only taught a particular way, but now you're asking me to add all of this content, that, that is an adaptive challenge. And I think that we have to be smarter 
about how we approach um, our work so that we're not giving a technical solution, develop a curriculum when it's really an adaptive challenge. Yeah, that's a that's a really important distinction, I think. And as you mentioned a couple of times in your response, that requires leadership, which I think is a good segue um, in the most recent uh, issue of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal, we kind of closed that special issue out with your article on leadership. It's entitled Advancing Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Developmental Disabilities, the Essential Role of Leadership for Cultural and Linguistic Competence, because we felt that your article really highlighted the important role for leaders and leadership within the space. Could you give us just a quick summary of that article? Yes, and thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to, to publish within the journal. We were very, very, very excited um, to and had a big celebration um, when just our abstract was accepted um, as it relates to this space. So this article really is um, a couple of things. It's taking a look back on a federally funded project from Administration of Community Living um, on um, our work in leadership and how do you advance leadership for cultural and linguistic competence, specifically within the intellectual and development disability space and looking at that across the board. So this article really looked at what did we learn through our comprehensive evaluation of that, I think it stretched into six year program and going back to visit people who participated in our leadership academies to see what stuck, how they currently using this work um, to really advance cultural and linguistic competence within their respective settings. And um, it gave, it really gave us this opportunity to um, share our lessons learned. And the Leadership Institute had multiple components. The biggest is the leadership academies that we conducted in Santa Fe, New Mexico, for a particular reason. Um, we, it's a wonderful place to be. It uh, exudes calmness and peace and harmony. And we wanted to put our values um, and our money where our values are so that we contracted over this whole period of time with uh, only American, primary American Indian owned um, hotel in Santa Fe. And that was just an amazing, amazing experience just in terms of just the how the hotel was laid out, its design and the people. And with those uh, leadership academies, there was intensive one week, really looking at leader, looking at understanding yourself as leader, which is looking at it from the person versus what is leadership, which leadership is a function. And we believe that anyone can learn leadership skills and to be able to apply them. We um, had just a, a, a number of sessions there um, over the period of time. Uh, those participants also had an opportunity to have a post-leadership academy coaching. And we found that very important because folks go off and they get all excited and they're in a course of study and then it ends. And all the camaraderie and all of the guidance ends with it. So we committed in this model to one year of coaching by our faculty for each of the leadership uh, academy graduates to work on a particular leadership challenge in the diversity, equity, and inclusion, and or cultural and linguistic competence space. Uh, so that was another thing. We also offered mentoring, which we know is so important. And we know that some of the mentoring mentee-mentor relationships have continued past that period of time. We're able to document that. We also worked uh, at an organizational level, and that was with the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, National Association of Councils of Developmental Disabilities, um, National Disability Rights Network, Family Voices, and, um, uh, and Save Self-Advocates Becoming mm -hmm. Empowered to really look at how do you not just do this at an individual level, but how do you begin to support the capacity of organizations to engage in this work? So those were pretty much the summary parts. And we also did just a series of webinars that still live on our website 
focusing on cultural linguistic competence and leadership. And so this article gave us an opportunity to share what we've learned in, in, in detail and maybe inspired us that maybe we need to search for funding and start it up all over again. Well, I will tell you, I don't have many regrets in my life, but one of my greatest regrets is the fact that I was never able to participate <laughs> in those leadership institutes in Santa Fe. I'd always see them come through, but I was not in a position where I could participate, but I have heard just incredible feedback. And I know some of the people who have participated in it and just what an impact it's had on their um, leadership and their their role within um, the programs that they work in. So, so what? So, kind of looking, you, you've kind of taken a big overview of the article in terms of just trying to boil it down and kind of make it accessible. What's the big message? What's the most important message that you would like readers to take from your article? That in order to do the work of advancing cultural and linguistic competence, diversity, equity, inclusion that it takes leadership and it takes leaders. So that, that message is, how is it that you are leading? You don't have to be um, in a, uh, let's say, an appointed leadership position, some high position within a university. You can lead by what you do each and every day. So that is one thing. The other is that we need leaders across the board and especially persons with lived experience of intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families definitely need to be in leadership roles. And so I, I, I think that that is the takeaway message that this doesn't happen just because of osmosis, that this work is ongoing and it takes leadership and individual leaders to help guide our path forward. Yeah. This work is hard and it does require people who are willing to forge ahead and maybe encounter some, some um, challenges along the way as you try to make changes within our systems. And, and, and I must say this, one part of the work we did with the Leadership Academy, and I have to make true confession, I never led this aspect because I don't always practice it, but we really <laughs> looked at self-care and being being a leader in this space means that you have to take care of yourself because it is so difficult. And I think that we just keep pl plugging along, not really thinking of the kind of stress that we can encounter. And so being a good leader is being able to recognize that. It's being able to figure out what are things that I need to do uh, to be um, whole and healthy um, physically, spiritually, um, emotionally, um, cognitively in this space. So I, I think that that is the second, and I shouldn't say a second, that is the other important message is taking care of self. And when you take care of self, part of that is also taking care of others. So I, it's all blended together, but it's so very important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's hard to look at people outside of yourself it's hard to work with systems it's hard to work with groups if you haven't taken care of yourself first um, because working with others is exhausting I mean it takes it takes something out of you um, and no so yeah I have learned that through difficult personal experience <laughs> and, I, and you said earlier again about the difficult times that we are in in this country that only heightens um, anxiety or reluctance yeah. or um, I just don't want to deal with this, that there's so much that's going on right now. So looking at taking care of self and also looking at how do we support others who may be experiencing the very same kinds of challenges. Yeah. Well, so so on that note, I want to I want to take a little shift here at the end. At the end of the podcast, we ask everybody two questions. Um, and to kind of get in more of an insight into right who you are as an author, as a leader within this space. Um, but I'm curious, um, what motivates you to do this work? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, I, that is such a deep question. And it uh, that is a really deep question. And, and I appreciate it. I think that as I look across this country, 
um, territories, tribal, tribal nations, that we know that we can do better to be inclusive, to support, and to welcome and offer a sense of belonging to all people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. We're no place near that. And so as long as that, um, I don't know, sphere remains as it is, that motivates me to do the work and to see outcomes for people who have had very positive experiences in terms of being themselves, in terms of whether it's teaching, delivering services, advocating for oneself, just to see that change is motivating. Mm -hmm. I would totally agree. Well, but as you're working towards that change, again, that can take that takes effort that takes um patience it takes something out of you so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of turn this question back on you and and add something that i didn't give you ahead of time so if you don't want to answer this you can say no matt i don't want to go there but what what do you do to take care of yourself as you do this work all right so um i'm not always good at that (laughs) so i want to put that there Uh, what what I have been doing, and I don't do it consistently, is I definitely exercise because that helps me a lot. I um, I also have taken to um, having work-free days, meaning like if it's a Saturday and it's been a particularly difficult week, then I don't even turn the computer on again until Sunday or Sunday evening, because I will get sucked in. Uh, the other thing in terms of taking care of itself is because the work is stressful. I have confidants of people that I can mm-hmm. talk to that I know that will listen, not necessarily to solve anything, but just listen to what the struggles are. I have a very, very, very supportive husband who makes me laugh and says, because I'm too serious all the time. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think that the other thing I do, and this would be outside the space, because you have to be really cold to be in the space, is to um, have two adorable granddaughters. My son and his wife um, live in, in Stockholm, and I get joy just out of looking at videos, um, FaceTime, looking at drawings, just some other aspects of, of my life that sometimes um, don't always get the prominence. So those are things, they're not magical, they're not anything else like that, but that's, those are things that have worked for me. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a consistent theme there. And if we look at, right, some of the emerging research around mental health and just wellness in general, having a strong social support system is just essential really to being healthy and well-balanced as you talk about having confidants and having family and everything else that's it's clear that that's an important part of your your success and your resilience so um last personal question here and we (laughs) ask this to everybody um but you know one of the focuses of the journal is to try to make this information more accessible and more inclusive. And so I like to ask all the authors who we interview, what's one thing that you've been doing in your personal life to make your work more inclusive and accessible? In my personal life. Yeah. Um, Or in your work or or in your work life. Yeah. So I, I would say in a work life, looking at making this work more inclusive is to really think about the diversity of audiences that need to have access to the information and how do you deliver that information in multiple ways to multiple groups so that they get what they need. So if that's by video, if that's by plain language, if that's by word of mouth, um, if that's by abstracts and uh, articles for, for publication, but really use rejecting this one size fits fits all to really be able to tailor so that we're talking about inclusive. I also think that when we look at disability in particular, and I'm just thinking about a meeting that we had today um, 
with uh, a particular department in the District of Columbia is to help those departments that may not be focused on disability be more um, attuned to the fact that people with disabilities experience their, their department services and support. And what is that experience like for the persons with disabilities in their families? And I think that um, those are things that we look at. Others would be to ensure that we are having written products in multiple languages. And mm -hmm. again, that that would be geared toward particular audiences to avoid the one size fits all. So if we want something for families that is created in a particular way, then we should do that. We have things for persons who experience intellectual disabilities in particular, we should do that. And I would want to make sure that as I say plain language, sometimes I see that the focus has been to um, put things in such plain language that the person with disability is at a distinct disadvantage because some of the words that they really need to know aren't there anymore. So I am big on if you're going to use a big word because you need to use a big word and because that person is going to continue to encounter that big word, then it needs to be explained in a way in which the person can understand. But they have that um, within them. They have that in their, in their uh, cognitive abilities to say, when I encounter this word, this is what it means and this is what it means in our life. And I think that our, our um, I don't know, our um, anxiousness to include plain language that we've sometimes have done persons with disability a disservice um, by not preparing them for things that they're gonna see and hear in their environment. Yeah. So those are some things I would say uh, around inclusion and to always think that disability is a universal experience. As and that because we live in America and because there are uh, so many different racial, ethnic, cultural, and identity groups, that inclusion means that we think about all of those groups in our work. Yeah. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate how comprehensive and articulate you are in expressing the importance of that. Um, Diver not, I mean, when you talk about diversity, and I heard this in your last answer, it's not just diversity of the people we work with, it's diversity in the way that we approach mm -hmm. the work, right? We have to have a variety of tools and be able to use the right tools for the right audience so that the information is accessible and useful and all those other things. And, and I would add to that, that we, inclusion means that persons who have lived experience of intellectual and developmental disabilities across all groups and their families are indeed very much involved in creating, co-creating and leading what it is that we do. And I, I think that sometimes that gets biased as well. So that um, how can I design a program for parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities, help them navigate systems without involving them in the kind of content that they need, the way they want to learn um, and what their interests are. So that's that's inclusion from that perspective that it is um, that we have to include people with lived experience in everything that we do. Yeah, yeah, that participatory work is so incredibly important. And on that note, I want to thank you. You're incredibly important, and the work that you've done has made a huge difference, and it's been a privilege to visit with you today. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up? I just would like to thank you and also thank the amazing faculty and staff that I've had just the greatest privilege with to work with our USED and our National Center for Cultural Competence over these, over these many years. Um, also, our collaborators and partners that we work with have just really supported and embraced this work and contributed. And that that is really very important to me. And as I look at this stage in my career and closer to retirement, that being able to express gratitude um, is so important. And I'll share one quote. Um, this is a, a quote from... 
um, uh, French educator whose death way back when helped start one of the very first schools for deaf children. And the quote is, gratitude is the memory of the heart. And that's what I feel to all of the people I've had the privilege to work with over these many years, including you, Matt. And, um, and I look forward to continuing this um, as I move toward retirement. Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say that anybody who works in this space wants to change the world. Um, I think it's fair to say that you have in many ways helped to motivate a lot of that change that we've seen over the last few years. And again, I'm just grateful for you and for the opportunity that I've had to work with you um, and for the opportunity just to have this conversation with you today. This has been incredibly enlightening and and helpful. And thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Matt. Be well. You too. So that's it for our conversation with Tawara today. I would like to thank Dr. Good for her time and for her kindness in this conversation. Um, I hope that you found this conversation as insightful as I did. Um, truly, I interview a lot of people uh, for this podcast and for other things, and um, it just was a joy to visit with Tawara today. So I hope that you find the conversation useful. I would like to thank those who are making this podcast possible. I'd like to thank the DDNJ Managing Editor and Author Insight Podcast Producer, Alex Shewall, for her hard work to get the podcast out. Uh, Alex does a lot of the behind-the-scenes work, and she is the one who makes things look good and sound good. So thank you, Alex, for all of your help with that. Um, if you would like to reach out to us, you can email us at the DDNJ editor email, which is editor.ddnj at usu.edu. That's editor.ddnj at usu.edu. Uh, and we'd also like to thank the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice, the USED, for their financial and in-kind support of this podcast in the journal. The journal also receives support from the Utah State University Libraries and Digital Commons, and we're grateful for their ongoing efforts to get this work out there. As I mentioned earlier, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. And again, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And please, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so that more people can become aware of the good work that is happening out there today. You can learn more about the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal at the DDNJ website, which is digitalcommons.usu.edu backslash DDNJ. Or you can go to Google and just type in DDNJ and the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal will pop up as your first result. You can also download podcast transcripts in English and Spanish and learn more about our podcast guests at the Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practices webpage, which is idrpp.usu.edu. And once you get to the homepage there, go to the drop-down menu with about, and you'll see a page for the journal and the podcasts there. So with that said, I think that's it for our episode today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Keep up the good work. You're making a difference and we want you to know that what you do matters. Stay tuned for our next episode and we'll see you next time.